I mean, you guys enjoyed that worship. Amen. You know, we serve a risen Lord and Savior, and it's, it's amazing that as we get ready to celebrate Fourth of July, we can celebrate not only our freedom in America, but also our freedom in Christ. For anyone that served in the military or armed forces, or if you had family members serve, if you guys just want to stand up real fast, we want to give you guys a, a round of applause for your service in the country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for protecting our freedoms. We want to welcome all of our guests. We have guests from all over, from Asheville, Hendersonville. Um, some of the uh, people that have been part of the church are back again today. We want to welcome you. I want to welcome my special guests, Dick and Donna McCotter. They drove all the from Waynesville, so it's good to have you guys here. All of our guests, we hope that you guys feel very welcome. And we want you to know that Arden First is a church where you can belong, believe, and become. And God is doing a work in this church. And uh, just consider it an honor to be here with you guys and excited about all that God's doing. For those of you who weren't here last week, we are able to announce what God did through our Vacation Bible School. We had uh, a large group of children come, and we had three professions of faith, and we had two kids get baptized this past Sunday. So that was really exciting. It was humorous. If you are on our Facebook page, we had the video posted, and I didn't realize how funny it was until I watched it on the video. But one of the kids, um, kind of the backstory, this was the first time he had ever been in church in his life, the week of VBS, he and his brother. And he just realized that he was going under the water, and he said in front of the whole church, you're not going to dunk me, are you? And I said, son, you're in a Baptist church, so you are going to go under. <laughs> and he was hollering. I guess he was expected to get sprinkled or something. I don't know. So uh, very humorous. We're going to be in First Peter today, chapter number 4, if you guys will go ahead and turn there. And we've been talking about how suffering is prevalent in the book of First Peter. And as I've been doing these messages, they've been a blessing to me because... Typically, unless you go through books of the Bible, there are certain passages that you skip over, like suffering, holiness, you know, certain passages that are taboo in most churches. And that's the advantage of going through books of the Bible is that when you encounter the passage, it really helps you understand uh, a full godly perspective on all the Bible, not just the stuff that makes us feel good. But one of the things I've just discovered for the first time is that sometimes the most complex passages the ones that are hardest to understand, if you will wrestle with them, you find the most gold in those passages. Depths that maybe, they just need to be mined out because they're a little deeper than other passages. And First Peter 4 is one of those passages, we're going to jump into it in a little bit. But before we, before we get into that, I want to give you a story by Max Lucado that kind of sets the stage for today's message and the story goes like this, that there was this poor old man in a tiny village. And he didn't have a lot going for him except he owned this beautiful white stallion. And he was the envy of all of the village. Even the king wanted his white stallion. Everyone offered to buy the horse from him. And the old man said, well, I can't sell the horse because he's like a family member. Would you sell a family member? He's like a best friend. Would any of you sell a best friend? So... Month after month, people try to buy the horse, and he wouldn't sell it. He wouldn't even sell it to the king. And in time, people began to ridicule and mock him and say, you're just an old foolish man. One day someone's going to steal the horse, and what will you have? You're, just, you're, you're poor, and you have nothing but the horse, and what are you going to do when it's gone one day? Sure enough, he went to go to a stable, 
and the horse is gone one day. And the old man, his heart just melted because this was like a family member to him. And he was so discouraged, and the village came around him and mocked him and said, you foolish old man, didn't we tell you? You could have sold the horse for whatever you wanted and lived off the money for the rest of your life, and now you're poor, and now you have nothing to show for. And the old man said, don't be so quick to judge. All you see is one little part of the story. You don't have the big picture, so don't judge. A few days later, the horse came back. And it had not run away. It had actually gone into the forest, and it came back with 12 other horses, wild stallions. And all the village people said, Old man, we're so sorry for judging you because this wasn't a curse. This was a blessing. Look at the 12 stallions. If you train these stallions and break them in, you can have even more money than you ever dreamed of. And the old man said, Don't judge. I don't know whether this is a blessing or cursing. All I know is my horse has returned, and now there's 12 more wild stallions. So the old man had an only son, and he had the son out in the fields with the horses, and he told his son, I need you to break these horses in, and I need you to train them. So the son, day after day, one by one, of all the 12 stallions, began to break the horses in and train them. But unfortunately, the son fell off one of the horses as he bucked up, and the son broke both of his legs, and he couldn't walk. And now the old man, he was a woodcutter. He's having to take care of his son take care of his job, and now he's even more poor and destitute than ever. And all the villagers came around and said, see, I told you, you know, who knows if this is going to be a blessing or cursing. Maybe you're right, old man. I mean, you should have just sold the horse in the first place, and you have to deal with this. And the old man said, listen, I don't know whether this is a blessing or not. Say only, my son has broken his legs. Whether this is a blessing or not, I don't know. We only see a fragment. Only God knows the full picture. A few weeks later... All of the sons were drafted into a war because there was a neighboring country where they wanted to go to warfare. And all of the sons were required to go into the army except for the old man's son because both his legs were broken and he was the only one excluded. And all the villagers came and wept at the old man's feet and said, Our sons probably will never come back because the enemy is stronger and we lost our son. Old man, we're so sorry. You were right. We shouldn't have judged things before the time. And the old man said, let's not judge. You don't know whether your sons are going to come back or not. Say only that your sons have gone to war and my son has stayed home. And from that story um, brings about the the parable of suffering. It, It illustrates something in suffering that when you're suffering, all you can see is the pain in front of you. For those of you who have been through sickness or sorrow, you've experienced a divorce your body doesn't work like it used to, and you're experiencing pain, it's easy to judge things before you can see the whole picture. And it's easy to say, I, you know, why is God doing this? And we've discovered a little review from last week, and this is on your handout, before we jump into the text. This is from 1 Peter 3. Hard times can actually be the best of times, we discovered. And we discovered the secret and experience of victory in your struggles is to keep your heart pure and your conscience cleared. Because we talked about if you're going through suffering, you need to know your heart's right with God. Otherwise, you won't have the peace to endure. And just as Jesus overcame all struggle, you too can be victorious. Amen? So let's jump into the text, and we're going to talk about the surprise gift part two, starting in verse one of 1 Peter 4. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, notice it's talking about physical suffering in the flesh, It says, arm yourself also with the same mind. 
For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he should no longer live the rest of his time in the lust of the flesh, but for the will of God. So that verse is saying that, you know, if you're suffering for righteous cause, you're trying to serve the Lord, and yet physical suffering, all this is happening, does does it make you want to sin more, or does it want to make you run away from sin? And we get the illustration from Christ that when you're suffering for righteous cause, you want to to pursue righteousness, not things of this world. Look at verse 3. It says, For we spend enough time of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. So this is talking about the unsaved world. And uh, Peter's saying, listen, this is what we used to do. Notice the list he gives. He says, we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Does it sound like today's culture or what? See, that's what we used to be. All right, look at the next verse, verse 4. It says, in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Now, before we read the next verse, how many of you have ever turned to 180 and your lifestyle's different and your old friends just don't get it anymore? Like, why don't you party with us? Why don't you do what we used to do? This verse says it'll happen. They won't understand why you're different. It says, they will give account of him to his ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, a little clarification of that verse. Different scholars have interpreted it different ways, but I think the two best interpretations are those who are dead, talking about those who have died already, but they heard the gospel, they accepted Christ, they're now with the Lord. Or it can refer to those who are spiritually dead. The gospel needs to be preached to those who are spiritually dead because that's the only way they can receive life. Look at verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. So he's saying Jesus is coming back soon. We don't know when. You know, the Bible says that a year is like a, a, year is like a thousand years in the Lord's sight, and a thousand years is like a year. So it's, it's like a day. So it's like we don't know. And um, some of you think, you know, 2,000 years, well, that's like two days in the sight of the Lord from an eternal perspective. A day, it could be like 10,000 years. It says, therefore, be serious. I like the old King James. It says, be sober-minded. In other words, keep a clear head. These are some things to look at. And it says, be watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover over a multitude of sins. I like verse 9. It says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. How many of you have ever had someone do a nice deed for you, and then they're like, you know how much that costs me, and they grumble about it? How many of you want that kind of hospitality? Not me, right? It says, verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we're going we're gonna to see that there's two different basic types of gifts. There's speaking gifts and there's serving gifts. Look at verse 11. If anyone speaks, these are talking to the Sunday school teachers, to the pastors, to anyone that gives a lesson through a Bible, children's workers, it says, let him speak as the oracles of God. So in other words, when you speak God's word, make sure it's God's word, not your own. It says, if anyone ministers, now minister is a broad category. Um, There's so many different ways you can minister. Some of you uh, clean the restroom. Some of you hand out bulletins. Some of you do visitation to the shut-ins. There's a whole big umbrella of ministry. Notice it says, let him do with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, 
to whom belong the glory, the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, your word is powerful and true. And God, as I mentioned, some of the most complicated passages have the most beauty to them if we will just wrestle with them a little bit. So Lord, as we're on the subject again of suffering, I pray that we will see beauty in the midst of ashes. That we will experience joy even in the midst of our sorrow. And God, even as I pray, and as those who listen online to this later on, as they're going through suffering, I pray that through the word of God they would receive encouragement and that you would minister to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. So today I want to give you a few snapshots of the surprise gift. And we talked about the surprise gift as this. Nobody would choose suffering, but if suffering is chosen for you, then you've got to make the most of it. And we also have determined through First Peter that all suffering as a Christian is temporary. So even if you have a lifelong sickness, in the end, guess what? You're going to get a new body that's not sick anymore. Um, even if the worst case scenario happens, we've talked about for the Christian, you can't kill the Christian, you can only promote the Christian. So even if I die today, I'm not dead, I'm still living with the Lord, amen? So that's the hope we have. I, I was talking to, uh, I do a men's Bible study at Laurel Ridge, and I was talking to a group of guys, most of them are probably 60 and older, and I said, you know, from eternal perspective, the older you get, the younger you get. Because the older you get, the closer you get to your glorified body. So from that perspective, you guys are actually younger than I am. And they looked around like, never thought about that before. So it's different when you see things from an eternal perspective. So look, look, look at your outline. Point number one is this. Following Jesus does not exempt us from suffering. Following Jesus does not exempt us from suffering. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. The story is told from a famous evangelist about one of his friends. And his friend had went through this horrible economic downturn. He had lost his job. He had lost his beautiful house. And he had lost everything that he had. And to make matters much, much worse, he lost his lovely bride. And he was so defeated. And the evangelist was telling about his friend how despite everything that happened, he clung on to his faith. Because he knew everything in this world can leave you, but Jesus will never leave you. So in spite of all his circumstances, he clung on to his faith. And once reality hit that I'm going to have to get another job and move on with my life, he decided to go out job hunting. And he was walking down this road one day, and he came upon this beautiful brick church. And there was construction workers out there working on this church. And he stopped for a moment just to see what they were doing. And they were cutting a triangular piece of rock. And he looked around the church and he didn't see where it fit in. So he asked the construction workers, where is that piece of triangular rock going to go? And one of the construction workers looked up to the very top of the spire uh, and said, you see right up there at the top of the steeple? There's a little piece up there. And we are cutting it down here so it fits in up there. And when the guy heard the phrase, God spoke to him and said, I am trimming you down here so you fit in up there. And his whole suffering had significance. He realized that this is horrible what happened to me, but God's going to use this in spite of my circumstances. And no one would ever choose to suffer. No one would ever choose to lose their job or their house or their spouse. But if the worst case scenario happens, we can know that the Lord is with us. Amen. And with this we have comfort. He's the one that will never leave us nor forsake us. 
He's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. So look back at verse 1. It says, arm yourselves. This is basically saying that suffering, when you're in suffering, you have to prepare your mind like you're going into a warfare. Arm yourself. Get your mind ready. Because this life, you will have problems. You know, it, it's really sad if you turn on your television and you think a lot of the pastors, if you become a Christian, life's going to be great, it's going to be always good, but then when you realize it's not always that way, the Bible never tells us life's going to be easy, does it? But it tells us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, Jesus is going to be with you. So you've got to arm yourself. You've got to prepare yourself for this. And how do we do that? Well, a few things. If you look at Philippians 1, 29, it says it has been granted on you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. When you read that verse, it seems very counterintuitive. It's been granted, like suffering's a privilege. And what that verse is saying is that when you enter into whatever Jesus went through, Jesus goes with you. So in the good times, Jesus is with you. In the bad times, Jesus is with you. When you're completely healthy and your body feels good, God's with you. When you go to the doctor and you get the bad report and you're like, why is this happening? Know that Jesus never leaves you. And he's got a greater plan than what you and I can understand. So when I read verses like that, I'm like, wow, suffering God can use. Philippians 2.5 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It says, even though he was God, he did not cling on to his rights. And he gave up a lot of the privileges. And he became a servant. And he served. And eventually he suffered. And through his suffering... All of us who have placed our faith in him, we have life and have life everlasting. Amen. Let me read you a quote by Martin Luther. This really got a hold of me. He says, if we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would be difficult for us at all to bear the concerns of this world. Martin Luther says, if I believe the word, I shall on the last day after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly to have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. And I'm like, wow. Martin Luther said, when I get before God and I see all the glory that's to come, I would rather do whatever it took to bring God glory. And that's, that's an eternal perspective. So in this world... You will have challenges, Jesus said. You will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Just as Jesus overcome the world, you too shall overcome. For those of you who experience suffering and sickness and sorrow, for those of you who experience family drama, one day your suffering will be turned into healing. One day your sickness will be turned into health. And one day your sorrow will will be turned into everlasting joy. Can I get a uh-huh? So, following Jesus does not exempt you from suffering. Number two, suffering for Jesus actually has many surprise benefits. Now, let's read the scripture back in verse 1b, and then I'm going to tell you a little story about it. It says, For he who has suffered in his flesh has ceased from sin, verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his life for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough time of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
In regards to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. But, look at verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Many of you have seen a beautiful picture of an eagle's nest, way high up in the mountaintops. And few of us have ever got a, a look inside of a nest. But something interesting about an eagle is the mother eagle will start building the nest with things that we wouldn't anticipate. She starts with briars. Sometimes it can be broken glass, sharp objects, all these things. And we're like, why would you start a nest like that? Then she pads it with wool and different fur from animals she's killed and different soft things that she finds along the earth. And as her little eaglets grow up, they get so comfortable in the plush bedding and the free meals that they don't want to fly away. They want to stay there in the comfort of mama's house. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? So what the mother has to do is she begins to take her strong talons and little by little pull up the comfort, pull up the feathers, pull up all the soft bedding. And eventually the little eaglets step and they're like, ouch, I feel briars. Ouch, I feel broken glass. And the mother eagle eventually begins to stir them up, not so that it can stay in the uncomfortable spot, but so they can learn to fly. And I'm just wondering, as we read this text about suffering, if sometimes our suffering, God is allowing certain things to happen so that at least spiritually we can soar to new heights. Otherwise, we'd be complacent. Otherwise, we wouldn't be calling upon God as we should. Sometimes suffering, C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our good times, but in our bad times, it's like his megaphone where he speaks clearly and loudly to us. So let's look at, these are some surprise benefits of being a Christian. Suffering as a Christian. And a lot of these have no relevance to the lost world suffering, but if you're in Christ, you're trying to live the the right life, but suffering happens, from this text there's five surprise benefits. Number one, suffering lightens sin's grip on your life. In verse one it says that if you've experienced suffering for being a Christian, sin It doesn't mean that you become perfect, but you no longer have a desire for sin. That which nailed Jesus to the cross, you no longer want to go after. Suffering opens up your eyes to how horrible sin is. Number two, suffering changes the perspective of your earthly pursuits. I love verse two. It says in verse two that we should no longer live the rest of this time in our flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. You have two choices with your life. You can either waste your life or you can invest your life. The Bible says sin is very pleasurable for a season. Obviously, none of us would sin if it wasn't fun, right? Can everyone agree sin's fun? But it only lasts for a season. And whenever you live in that lifestyle of doing your own thing, your own way, you look back on those years as you become a Christian, you think, man, those are years that I wasted. But the good news is God can turn that around. The Bible says that he can restore to you the years which the locusts have eaten away. Instead of wasting your life, we're to invest your life. And suffering opens up your eyes that life is short. Life is like a vapor. And I've got to make the most use of it. Number three, suffering helps you realize the stupidity of sin. Stupidity of sin. 
You guys care if I go old school pastor for a second? This is going to sound like old school when you guys grew up in church. Sin is stupid for the following reasons. This makes me think when I was a little kid and you had the old school pastor that couldn't catch his breath. But just picture this for a second. Number one, sin will always harm you and never truly help you. From an eternal perspective, sin never really helps you. Sin separates you from your true purpose in life. Sin is like a, a pit. And every time you fall into it, it slows you down from reaching your purpose. Sin creates a distance between you and God. I mean, I don't want that. I don't know about you. Sin creates conflict in your relationships with others. Think about this. Almost every conflict you can think of relationally does not trace back to some sort of sin, whether it be pride or selfishness. If there was no sin, we'd have perfect relationships. Have you ever thought about that? So every time I have to apologize to my wife for something I did, it's like, baby, I'm sorry, I was fill in the blank. If there was no sin in Timothy Brown, I would have no conflict, at least on my side, with my wife, right? And number five, sin kills. It kills your potential, it kills your relationship, it has no lasting value. And those are some things, when you think of it from that perspective, it's like, okay, sin no longer seems that glamorous. When you realize from a temporary perspective it seems great, but from a big picture perspective it's like, wow, it kills, it has no lasting value, it's a waste of time. So in this text, I'm just going to hit a few highlights. Verse 3, it brings up a few different things, but here's some of Satan's strategy. One thing he does is the false pursuit of freedom. The Bible says lewdness there. A lot of times Satan will say, well, if you, if, you, if you want to do it, go after it. If it feels good, do it. Isn't there a song, if it feels good, it can't be that bad? That's one of Satan's strategy. Go after your feelings. Because how many of us realize your feelings change by the moment? I mean, if I went by my feelings, I would be a horrible parent, I would be a horrible husband, and I would be a horrible pastor. Because feelings change. You can't go by feelings. Another one of his strategy is the, the drive to have more. That's lust. We just want more because we're not satisfied with what we have. Taking shortcuts to happiness. When the Bible talks about drunkenness, it's kind of like this. I've had people say to me, um, you're this happy and you're not drunk? <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's almost like people have to take shortcuts to true happiness. I don't have to have a substance to make me experience joy and happiness. You ever thought about that? Why do people have to take things to make them feel something? Can't you get that high in your relationship with the Lord? Don't take shortcuts. The pursuit of sex without purity and intimacy. The Bible says revelries and drinking parties. And the idea is God has created intimacy as a wonderful thing, but don't cheapen it. Do it in God's way. Do it in his timing. And then worshiping created things instead of the creator. And the Bible talks about anything you put before God becomes an idol. And really, idols, do they really get you anywhere? They just lead you along the wrong path. And at the end, you look back in your life and you're like, man, I wish I would have followed God's best. So suffering allows you to realize that sin is really stupid. Satan's strategy is this. He will give you the best he's got and then it just gets progressively worse. Jesus' strategy is this. He gives you what's good now and he saves the best for last. Amen. Suffering, number four, it shows you who your real friends are. Verse 4 says that people, when you turn your life around and you start following Christ instead of your old lifestyle, people will think you're crazy. They'll think, what happened to you? You become some Jesus freak, Jesus whatever. And my wife was telling me about when she turned her life around. Her, her testimony is 
in her 20s. She never heard the gospel until her 20s. Grew up in South Florida. And when she came up to the mountains, she finally heard the gospel. And she turned her life around. And then she said people on Facebook, some of her old friends were like, Lori's gone off the deep end. She's out there. And it's like the people of the world just don't understand because you're different. They don't get it. Now think about, think about this thinking here. Okay, if you have someone in the world that they lose their marriage, they lose their career, their body goes downhill because of substances they take, the world doesn't think anything of it, do they? They think it's just normal. But if you have someone that decides to turn their life around, become sober, become a good father, a good mother, the world thinks it's crazy. Have you guys ever thought about that thinking? I mean, you can mention anything to someone in the world and they think it's not a big deal, but you turn your life around and start following Christ and the world thinks you've gone crazy. So, suffering shows you who your friends really are. Number five, suffering prepares you for the world to come. The Bible says that we're not of this world. We are just pilgrims passing through. So, whenever you go through suffering, it lightens your grip upon this world because you know we have no enduring city, but we seek one to come. So, whenever you and I have physical issues, and some of you have had major physical health issues, does it not make you long at least for your perfect body that's to come? Have, have you put in an order for your perfect body yet? <laughs> I had a, a pastor one time, and I don't know if this is theologically correct, but he said, yeah, you know, he, he was a little shorter. He said, you know, when, when I get my glorified body, I want to be six foot six with a six pack. And I'm like, can you do that? I don't know, but he's thinking at least about his eternity. So when people judge you now as a Christian, and they don't understand your godly groove, just know this, that one day they're going to have to stand before God. So don't worry if other people of the world don't get you. Amen? And finally, the third aspect, the third point of this message about the surprise gift of suffering is our life challenges should never keep us from our life calling. In verses 7 through 11, it gives a whole list of what it means to bring God glory. And I'm just going to hit a few highlights. But... I want to read this to you by Vance Havner. I've never seen this before until recently. But many of you have heard of the Nicene Council. It's where they, a lot of the doctrines in the Bible, they formalized it. The 66 books in the Bible, they, they, it was already inspired, but they said, you know, these 66 are legit and they're in the canon of Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity. Many of the great things that came out of the Nicene Council happened. And this was in the 4th century A.D., but Vance Havner said, of the 318 delegates, now this shocked me, so 318 people there, fewer than 12, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye or a hand or did not limp on a leg lame by torture for their Christian faith. When I read that, I was shocked. So of, of the 318 people, only 12 out of that bunch had not experienced some sort of suffering. When I read that, I'm like, wow. Imagine what people in the early church went through for their Christian faith. So, have you guys ever wanted to know what your life's purpose is? So many of us struggle and wrestle like, you know, what does God want me to do with my career, with my family, with my calling? And these verses 7 through 11 help you clarify. Ultimately, it's to bring God glory, but here's a few steps. The first one is this. Pray with focus and insight, verse 7. The Bible says that whenever we pray, we're to be sober-minded. Literally, that means have a clear head. As some of our younger people say, be cool, right? Just, just have your mind clear. Don't have clutter. How many of you have found it hard to pray when you have so many things dancing around your mind? 
Some of us, our mind is like a jungle gym. We have so many things going through, and when we try to pray, you ever seen the computer with the pop-ups? That's how your mind works. So whenever you pray, just practicality. If you can just get away in a private place, and if those things pop up in your mind, write them down and put them aside. That will help you focus when you pray. And whenever you pray, you begin to get God's perspective on your situation, why you're going through what you're going. Love with passion and forgiveness. Look at verse 8. It says, above all things, and in other words, all these things we're talking about, all of them are biblical, but this is the most important thing. Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover over a multitude of sins. So here's the picture. Arden first, I want it to be known for a lot of things. But if someone asks, what is Arden first known for? I want Arden first to be known as a place that truly loves people. Because if you truly love people, the Bible says, by this, Jesus said, all men will know by your, know you're my disciples by how you what? Love one another. It'd be great if it said great preaching or great music or great evangelism or great discipleship. All those are great. But he said the true mark of a disciple is if you truly love people passionately and fervently out of a pure heart. So let us be about that. Verse 9, I laugh as I read this. But it says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Have you ever done something for someone and yet, and I'm just being honest here, you thought about, man, I'm showing hospitality. Hospitality means love of strangers. And then you realize I still have to pay the bills, even though I took this person out to eat. Um, I still have gas put in my car. How am I going to make it happen? And you feel that sting. And on, on the flip side, have you, has someone ever done something nice for you? And then they constantly bring it back up. You remember I did this, 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 so the gift becomes obligation. You guys know what I'm talking about? This verse is so freeing. It says, whenever you show hospitality, means when you do something nice for someone. This is something fresh the Lord talked to me about through the scripture. Is that when God leads you to do something nice for someone, you can trust God that he'll take care of the difference, whatever the finances is. So we've got to be generous people. Christians should not be stingy are greedy. We should be hospitable. We should love people. And love is shown by giving and serving others. So if God leads you to take someone out to eat or take someone for a coffee or whatever and your budget's a little tight, just know that God will make up the difference. Amen. So show hospitality without what? Grumbling. Build each other up. The Bible says that we're to minister to one another. What would Arden First look like if we built each other up? So often, not in Arden First, but in other churches, people bring each other down. You go to church. Have you ever been in church and you feel more discouraged than when you left? You're just like, man, I, I feel beat down. And it shouldn't be that way. Here's the truth about the gospel. It's always good news, even if there's bad news involved. Not necessarily bad news, but challenging news. Like we're talking about suffering. It's always good news because as a Christian, in the end, we win. In the end, God's got it worked out. So build each other up. And it says, be a steward of God's grace. Notice it says, if anyone speaks or anyone teaches, let him speak as though the oracles of God. And if anyone serves, let him serve with the ability that God gives. So here's the picture. For a healthy church, you're going to have people that are gifted differently. Some people are gifted teachers. We have a lot of amazing Sunday school teachers here, children's leaders and all that. And some of you, if I said, hey, teach this class, you would be freaked out. You're like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to say, what to do. But if I asked you to serve some brew some coffee or what, you would be like, wow, okay, I get it. So some of you have speaking gifts and some of you have serving gifts. 
and we each use whatever gift we have to build up the body of Christ. And the thing is, as we each do our part, the church grows. Have you guys ever heard of the 20-80 principle? 20-80 principle, some of you are in business have heard this. Basically, the premise is 20% of the people do 80% of everything. Have you guys found that true to be in life, in business, in church? What if we flip that around? What if the majority of us did it and there was no small remnant doing all the work? I think that would change, change everything around. Final story, and we're finished. Um, the story is told of this janitor in St. Peter's Church in, in London. And he was you know, cleaning up. We're talking about everyone has a different gift. He had a serving gift. And this beautiful church, here's a picture of it. And one of the young rectors uh, saw that this janitor couldn't read. And of all the nerve, he fired him. You can imagine what kind of scandal that created in the church, right? He fired the janitor because he couldn't read. And the janitor, like, I don't know what to do. So he went out and he bought a small shop. And the shop became very successful. And it grew. And he started another shop and another shop. And eventually he had a whole chain of stores there in England. And his banker said to him, he said, um, I've realized you've been immensely successful. He had hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. And he said, but think about this. What would it be like if you could read? Where would you be if you could read and weren't illiterate? He said, well, if I could read, I'd still be a janitor at St. Peter's Church. And the truth is, you look at your suffering, you look at what you're going through, and it doesn't make sense at the time. But what if, just like an airplane, in order to fly, you have to overcome what? Gravity. What if the gravitational force of suffering is bringing you down, but you know what, you're still trusting in the Lord? You're still asking him to help you. And one day, in God's timing, you'll see Isaiah 40, 31. You will mount up like wings as eagles. And all of a sudden, you will be above your circumstances. So the final thought is this. None of us would choose suffering. Nobody would in their right mind. But in this fallen, fallible world, a world that's not perfect, a world that's marked by sin and Satan, if suffering does happen to you, Realize that God can use it. So your take-home truth and your family talk questions are on the screen. Never waste a trial. Allow hard times to bring you closer to God and closer to others. So as you guys go out to lunch, here's a few family talk questions just to get the conversation started. Number one, what is your life's calling? How has God wired you? How has He wired you in your family, in your career? For those of you who are retired, how has He wired you? And number two... How are you using your gift to serve others and to build up the church? Because God wants to use that. He wants to use your shape and how you're wired to help bless others. Amen. And remember that God is shaping you down here so that you fit in up there. Let's pray. Father, none of us understands all the mysteries of your word. None of us fully comprehend why challenges happen why bad things happen to those who are following you. But God, your word tells us we live in a fallen world. Your word tells us in this world we will have challenges. But your word tells us that we can be of good cheer because sorrow will be turned into joy. Heartbreak will be turned into healing. And God, depression 
one day will be turned into everlasting joy. Right now, with everyone in a spirit of prayer, would there be someone here that would say, Timothy, today, I'm going through some sort of suffering. It could be physical. It could be financial. It could be emotional. It could be maybe you struggle with depression. I don't know what it is. But you're going through some sort of suffering. And today, the Lord has given you a little bit of hope that there is significance in your struggle. That suffering, even though it seems really bad, it can help you grow closer to God like never before. It can lighten sin's grip. It can prepare you for eternity. And today, you just want to ask God to give you the grace to have His perspective on your earthly challenges. If that's you, raise your hand. I want to pray for those suffering challenges. Father, you see the hands lifted to heaven. And God, I want to pray in your will that for those that you want to heal right now, that you would, that you, we believe that you're the God who heals, that you're the God who can change things. But God, for those of us who would say, just like you said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Allow me to be strong in your weakness and trust my timing. I pray that you would speak grace to them as well. God, we're submitted to your will. And finally, if there be one here today with no one looking around that doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you want your suffering to have significance. You want your life to have a purpose. And everything I've said today doesn't really apply to you if you're not in Christ. So the greatest thing you can do to know that someone's going to be with you, by your side, through all of life's journey, the good and the bad, is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So right now where you're sitting, just say something like this in your heart. Dear Jesus, I need you in my life. I ask and pray that you would step out of heaven and into my life. I believe that you died on the cross and you rose again and I want to give my life to you, Jesus. Please forgive me of my sins. Please give me a new life. Holy Spirit, I invite you to fill my heart and help me in the good and the bad times. Father, thank you that there's significance in our struggles. Thank you that you're near to the brokenhearted and you help those who are struggling. And God, we thank you that Jesus said, I have overcome the world and you too will overcome it. We pray in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. If everyone stand, we're going to have the hymn.